previously on Returning Student. All right, so the last time I was in this building, I think I was on the sixth floor. I'm conscious that I am putting this all together. We're all putting this all together right now. And I immediately got excited about that title. I thought, oh my goodness, I love holograms. I do think that there's a difference between the surface and the reality, and, and we confuse this. We didn't buy gifts too often in the gift shops. However, there was an exception. One time I found a hologram. I asked my folks if it could be my souvenir, and they went for it. They let me get it. I had that hologram for a long time, but the last time I kind of remember having it in my possession was about 20 years ago when I was moving out to go to college. You know, we've just been bombarded over the last 50, 60 years with photographic images, with all types of images, and we live in images and we forget that, that that's where we're living. Not to say that they don't have a lot of use, but it's in the forgetting. Okay, I, uh, it's a rainy day. And I'm trying to find my film class, F Philosophical Issues in Film. And I have to go to the 600 building. There's a six, there's a lot of six buildings with 600s. Hi there. Welcome to Returning Student. My name's David, and this is episode five of a podcast that I'm making about my return to school. Okay, this is it here, I think. This is, okay, Columbia College, 623. I'm currently running around the campus area of Columbia College in downtown Chicago. Okay, that wasn't it. 610, I'm looking for six, I think it's 610. There's a 619 Columbia building, looks like that's a school store or something. It's new. If you've been with me since the beginning of the show, you know all too well how much has changed over the past 20 years. All my other classes, I put the room number in my notes in my calendar event, and this one I just forgot to do it. Columbia's campus isn't really a campus, it is a series of buildings that are peppered about right in the middle of downtown Chicago. Checking my map here, and it looks like maybe it's on Michigan Ave? Is this the main building? Uh, maybe it's, I think I know what building it is, I think it's this one in the corner here. I actually like the aesthetic, it makes you feel like you're part of a living, breathing world. Some of the buildings have been around for a long, long time, and some are brand new. <laughs> Even the old ones have changed enough that some of those are hard to recognize. There's a huge puddle. Okay. Hiding behind my umbrella. You know, a typical campus is perfectly fine, but with Columbia, I, I like that you get the city experience. <laughs> and when it comes to experiencing a windy city, Chicago definitely delivers. I literally have my umbrella sideways right now. Facing out towards the lake as I walk down this street. It's, it's more of a shield than an umbrella right now. It's insane. Here we are. Is this it? I quickly step into the next Columbia building. This one's on Harrison Street and Michigan Ave. This is the building that faces Grant Park that literally says Columbia College on it. This was the first building I ever was in, ever. It's true, over 20 years ago, this is the very first building my parents and I walked into to attend a preview day. The Ferguson Lecture Hall. The Ferguson Lecture Hall is what I'm walking past. Maybe it was called that 20 years ago. This lecture hall is special to me. Um, it's actually pretty weird seeing it now, of course, 20 years later. You know, the entryway, all of it, is burned in my memory. 
I remember back in 1999, my folks and I drove to the uh, South Loop of Chicago. We parked in a parking lot that was under the green line. That parking lot does not exist anymore. It's a building now. And I've said in previous episodes that, you know, we had been to Chicago plenty of times for the museums, but this was really one of the first times that we were really, you know, had the, had the foot to the pavement and we were truly walking on the streets of Chicago. And I was so excited. I remember opening up the sliding minivan door and uh, seeing the parking lot, seeing the L train. I mean, thinking about it now, I actually walk past that block daily. But back then, just learning how to pay a parking meter in a big city was special. My mom and my dad and, and I had to walk a couple blocks to this main building that we were instructed to go to. And then I remember a couple buses. I remember a lot of people. I remember this, this building being very full. I don't recall if there were specific times for presentations, but I do remember that we went into this Ferguson <laughs> uh, theater as a welcome to the school. I remember sitting down, oh, I don't know, three, four rows back with mom and dad, definitely right in the middle. You know, this was a moment where it's, it's one of the first times you're going to do something out of your hometown and start to define and, and, you, and I kind of remember thinking like, you know, this is the beginning of me starting to choose what I want my life to be. And so I started looking around at the other students. There was, I'll admit, there was like a kind of a cute girl behind. And I tried to glance once or twice, but then I, you know, of course you can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't make a fool of yourself. <laughs> um, but all of it was just, I was just so excited to be around other people, other artists that were, you know, other, uh, I guess, kids that were interested in going to this school. And I'm... I might be misremembering, but I remember a tall man with a beard getting up and um, addressing the group. And he talked about Columbia. He talked about what their priorities were. This is, again, this is back in 1999. And right off the bat, before he even really got into his presentation, his welcome speech, I guess, he kind of pulled the audience and he asked us, he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing right now. I don't remember exactly how he asked it, but he basically said, uh, who here has had a hard time getting good grades in school. You know, some people raise their hands. Uh, who here has, you know, doesn't test well? Some people raise their hands. Who here find that it's difficult to read? Some people raise their hands. I'm raising my hand on like every single one of these things. And then, then he had a question. He said something like, you know, who here feels like they haven't, just haven't quite fit in with, the, with their school system? And we all raised our hands. And then he kind of looked at us and he just went, welcome. And it was cool. It was impactful. I think it even affected my folks a little bit. And so he went on to speak about the school's priorities and the kinds of things we could look for. And remember, at this time, I actually thought I was going to school for theater. I, I, I will remind you that I technically started Columbia College, Chicago, as a theater major. And after about a semester of being in theater, I ended up actually getting asked to be an actor in a lot of the student films. And I got so excited about film that by the time the second semester rolled around, I realized I wanted to switch my major to film and video. And if you remember from episode one, even when I spoke to the person at the table at the college fair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, about Columbia, we were actually talking about film more than anything. Kind of wondering if maybe I had production in me, you know, right from the beginning. I suddenly realized that the security guard is walking up to me. Oh yeah, I, you know, I think I'm looking for the film building just next door, honestly, I'm in the wrong building. <laughs> well, there goes that flashback. 
You see, I didn't scan my ID as I entered, and she's probably wondering why some 40-year-old man is talking into his phone as he stares into this lecture hall. I'm still getting used to this. It's not that one. Back on Michigan Ave. Oh, here it is. It's right next door. The Joyce Avram Gray Family Education Center? It's a very cool looking building. The whole thing is covered with angled glass. It looks like something straight out of a science fiction film. I didn't know this was a Columbia building, but the address is right. I head inside. Hi there. The security guard is wearing a different uniform than the others I've seen on campus, but he politely greets me and I do see a student ID scanner. So I press my student ID against the little panel and I head to the fourth floor. around the edge there's okay I'm up on the fourth floor it's really quiet up here there's a I see a, like a theater I think that's what this class is in oh because we're gonna be watching films okay I'm gonna step away for a second um I see a bunch of kids I see a bunch of students I guess maybe f 50 or 60 this is I think it's the biggest class I've had yet and I'm going to I don't know I guess I'm gonna walk in and find a seat my fourth class. This part I am getting used to. I walk into the large lecture hall and I find a seat about halfway back and a little to the side. I take out my laptop and I get set up just as Professor Ozma begins. We go over the syllabus, do all the introductions, which brings us to an early break. And as we return, Professor Ozma jumps right into lecture. He's obviously setting up the basics for philosophy. It's very clear that we're going to be examining philosophical issues in a chronological sense. And it's a cool class, you know? I mean, <laughs> another elective. As the class wrapped up, I felt like I was in good hands. I felt like the professor cared about the students, cared about the lecture, cared about engagement. Okay. Well, that was a cool class. It's still raining. Um, Michigan Ave now, pointing my umbrella in the other direction, the wind has changed. And that was a cool class. Uh, the professor was really good at, um, I really enjoyed his lecture. I can tell, I think he's been doing this for a while. I noticed he has a PhD. And uh, he was really engaging. He was really good at having a prepared lecture, but also um, engaging the class, even though it was my largest class. Oh, this wind. This is, I think this is definitely my largest class. No, I know it is. Um, and even though there's, I mean, maybe there was a hundred kids. It was probably 50. But anyway, he kept his, he had a slideshow ready to go, a deck, which I'm sure will be the case every class. Really good lecture, but then also asked a bunch of questions and kept all of the students really engaged. Um, he let it, he let the students almost. I mean, I couldn't help myself. I had to chime in a few times, and it was like uh, he allowed us to. What's the expression? He let us think it was our idea. Like he, like he would obviously be trying to make a point because he obviously had his curriculum and his lecture planned. But he allowed the students to kind of find by asking questions. He allowed all the different students to find their way there, or our way there. Um, I gotta take notes from that. 
I'm, I'm taking notes on the class, but taking notes on the teaching style too. Time to uh, hit the red line and get home. What we'll be doing is we'll be given a choice of films each week and we'll have to watch one of them and, and each week these films will examine a certain philosophy. And then each week we'll have to write a paper on the film that we watched and discuss how it related to the philosophy that was discussed in lecture. Well, this is crazy. Just like that, it went from like windy and storming rain to just a little drizzle now. Within a few seconds, felt like Back to the Future too. Oh, going under the green line here. A few days later, I'm sitting in the sunroom at the front of the condo, going over my first assignment for the Philosophical Issues in Film class. We were told on day one that each assignment would need to be, you know, roughly a two-page paper. Nothing crazy, but it is taking me a little bit of time to kind of get my creative gears turning. Professor Ozma jokingly refers to these assignments as philosophy assignments. I like it, and the first paper assigned actually takes place before needing to watch any films. The module on Canvas asks us, why philosophy and film? We live on the second floor of a condo building, and I look out the window and watch the people walk by on the street below. I take a sip of my coffee, trying to organize my thoughts. Why philosophy and film? Well, I know a little bit about film from the first time I went to school. I think maybe I can use that as a jumping off point. Another sip of coffee. Another look out the window. I watch two squirrels climb up a tree. Film. About an hour goes by. Uh, Macy's in our shared office working from home. I usually work in that office as well, but I came out here to the front room to, I don't know, try to focus or something. Another sip of coffee. There was one cool thing that Professor Ozmas talked about in the lecture. And he was using the, the allegory of the cave. It was an idea that Plato came up with. And it was almost a perfect metaphor for film. It was the rough, the broad strokes are that you imagine an audience in a cave that live in this cave perpetually and they see um, um, a performance of shadow puppets up on a wall and the people in that cave aren't even aware that behind them or above and behind them are other people performing these shadow puppets and then the people down in the cave build their entire reality um, only off the information that they see on the wall so these people um, are not only not aware of the information being kind of packaged and presented to them. Furthermore, they can't even comprehend the idea that there might be something outside the cave. I get it. I like it. You know, some, some metaphors for enlightenment and, you know, building, building a reality off of only what you know. It is kind of interesting because even that metaphor or that scenario or whatever kind of, in a way, even makes me think about how in science we've learned more and more about our existence and our universe and everything. And there might be something there that I can talk about. Another sip of coffee. Look out the window. Some people are walking by. One more sip of coffee. My coffee's empty. 
I walk to the kitchen and I pour a glass of water. I think I might have something here. Yeah, yeah, I might have something here. That might be a jumping off point. I come back with a glass of water and I think I'm onto something. I take a sip. I'm pretty intimidated to write something. I, I, it's not a skill set that I usually use. I mean, I don't, I don't it's uncommon for me to read many things, let alone write things. I used to joke that the reason I podcast is so I don't have to write things. Well, what would I do if this was a podcast? Maybe I just pretend I'm podcasting. I'll just type it instead of speaking it into a microphone. Plato's Allegory. Yeah, let's start with that. Fall 21, Philosophy 21201. Professor Dr. Stephen T. Ozma. Module 1 Why Philosophy and Film. When Subtext is Stronger Than Text. I wasn't aware of Plato's allegory of the cave before Professor Ozma's lecture. The thought experiment involves puppeteers in a cave performing via shadow puppets to an audience unaware that they are being manipulated. An audience that doesn't know that it's an audience. The people in this audience have built their reality based only on the information from the shadow puppet performances. It's only the first week, but for now, it seems that the study of philosophy through the lens of film is the study of the people casting the shadows on Plato's cave wall. What stories are they telling? What truth are they choosing to give to the audience? The signals they send are an aggregation of perceived truths rather than any single objective truth. In Plato's model, the truth is outside the cave. I imagine that brilliant people have spent their entire lives exiting the cave, so to speak, looking outward, attempting to truly understand the tree or the cow or the sky that exists in reality. What's fascinating about the medium of film is that it seems to choose to look inward to posit what it might feel like to look outward. It would seem that the study of philosophy through the art form of film allows us to voluntarily go back into the cave to examine the fire, the shadow puppets, and the rock wall that reflects light. But most importantly, we seem to be allowing ourselves to study the minds of the puppeteers. The puppet makers who subconsciously reflect the mysteries that we seek to understand on a grander scale outside the cave. In my 20s and early 30s, I enjoyed working as an actor in a healthy number of short films as well as plenty of small theatrical performances. I took pride in honing my ability to control my body and project the necessary emotions to communicate the desired information to tell a story to an audience. I realized that by honing my skills and learning to control every muscle and bone of my body, sometimes even my sweat and tears, I was essentially building a puppet. My body was that puppet, and it was my job to sink and move all of these disparate parts of flesh and bone to project the render of a person who was feeling a certain way. In theater, you have to repeat this illusion once or twice a day for months, and in film, you usually wait around for hours on a set and are required to execute this render with sometimes only seconds of preparation while 15 people holding lights and cables stare at you. It's generally accepted that an actor isn't supposed to allow their actual, immediate emotions to affect their performance. 
However, it's usually encouraged to allow your emotions to inform your performance if they're relevant to the scene, the way a musician might find themselves channeling certain emotions as they perform a song. If an actor needs to portray rage in a scene and they actually let themselves get enraged, they're no longer acting. They're technically out of control. It's a little less dramatic, but the same can be said for a scene that requires an actor to portray a character who is mourning the loss of a loved one. A third and equally dangerous example is when actors are required to play lovers. During my time acting, I found myself in a bit of a crisis. I didn't technically have a problem separating my real emotions with the illusion of emotions that I was hoping the audience would take from my performances, but for a while I began to question if I was lying to the audience. I considered the idea that the art which I had chosen to express through was malicious. After a performance, it was clear that the audience walked away with an unavoidable, manufactured reality in their heads. The resolution that I came to seems obvious now, but I chose that I wasn't lying to the audience because they were aware of the context of the situation. They paid money for a ticket to enter a room and watch other people project inauthentic but effective emotions in service of a story. There was an unspoken social contract wherein the audience knew they weren't watching reality, but a rehearsed version of the story's reality. It makes me think about Plato's cave. The individuals watching the shadow puppets don't have the same contract with the performers of the puppets. In fact, they don't even know that there are performers. I especially look forward to discussing the idea of a film's ability to manipulate or inspire or infect an audience. A film can seduce a person who isn't familiar with the makings of the art form because it uses so many senses that any regular person uses daily. Sight and sound are the most obvious. Smell and touch don't usually apply, but the film makes up for this by creating new senses that only exist when our brain is forced to deduce logic from an impossible situation. Filmmaking employs a tool that doesn't show up in many other art forms. It is the cut, an edit where the audience's literal point of view can travel through space and time. The cut is like magic. It doesn't adhere to our perceived rules of physics, but somehow helps the film feel even more real. It's interesting to note that the puppeteers in Plato's cave don't have this tool. And I wonder how that might change the realities that a film audience might walk away with, even if they did buy a ticket. Well, that works for me. My first paper. <laughs> I could probably clean it up a little bit, but um, that strategy of pretending that I was podcasting worked out pretty well. And it only took an entire morning. I got it done just in time, though, because Macy and I are heading to Kentucky today. Back in episode three, I mentioned that we did make one luxury purchase when Macy got her new job. You might recall that that purchase was a plot of land in Kentucky. We've owned the land for almost a year now. In fact, we found it far before I had any plans to come back to school. And over the past year, we've been camping on the undeveloped land and also slowly putting a couple buildings on it. After the break, I'll tell the story of how we found the land. It, it in itself is its own tiny little adventure, which was just the beginning of a very large adventure of us homesteading this land. It has been truly, truly fulfilling. Both Macy and I love the city and love living in the city, but almost every other week we go down to Kentucky to get some peace and quiet. It is 100% one of the coolest projects that I've ever done with anybody, and I'm really grateful that Macy and I are able to grow in our relationship through these projects on the land. You know, we don't have any kids or anything, but um, 
but really that feeling of making something from absolutely nothing is amazing. And I'm grateful to be sharing those emotions with her. And as a little teaser here, us finding this magical plot of land and us deciding we wanted to buy it all happened within 24 hours. But I'll get into that when returning student returns. Hey there, podcast listeners. I am David. And I'm Kate. And together we host a podcast that you might be interested in if you like The Legend of Zelda. There are lots of awesome podcasts out there and a lot of awesome Zelda podcasts out there. (laughs) That's right, Kate. And we are another one of them. In fact, that is the name of our show, Another Zelda Podcast. And in our show in particular, we talk about some of our favorite dungeons, characters, boss battles. We do a couple top ten lists here and there. We have some deep dive episodes and we even pepper in a couple quiz episodes. We talk about our own experiences, we do some review episodes, talk about our challenges, our struggles, and our victories. That's right. If it has to do with Legend of Zelda, we talk about it. You can check out our episodes on our website, anotherzeldapodcast.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and a lot of the other podcast services that are out there. And you can also check out our episodes on our website, anotherzeldapodcast.com. All right, we will see you there. Okay, bye! Hey, this is TC. And this is Jim from The Studio Demands It. A bi-weekly screenwriting podcast where every episode we conceptualize and craft an entire screenplay from the ground up based on the demands and stipulations of one of our listeners acting as a studio. You send the demands and we meet them. And we do everything from hypothetical sequels of popular franchises. You want a Star Wars Episode Ten? To reboots and reimaginings of films that deserve a fresh chance. Die Hard 5, The Lone Ranger. hypothetical films that simply must be brought into existence. Why, yes, we do have Justice League 1995 starring Michael Keaton and Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. So join the creative process over at StudioDemandsIt.com. Or find us on all the podcasting platforms where you can listen to our newest episodes and our entire back catalog. Hey, what else do we got for these people? A Pirates of the Caribbean starring Karen Gillian. Happy Death Day 3. Fast and or Furious 10. They race on Mars. Oh, how about a Frozen 2? Reign of Fire 2. More future, more dragons. Welcome back to Returning Student. We're going to rewind a little bit here, and I'm going to tell you about a time that predates any conversations about going back to school, back to a time where the world was only about six months deep into the COVID pandemic, a time shortly after Macy got her new job. I had my executive team lead position at Target, and together we were living very comfortably. I mean, except for the whole permanently stuck at home due to a nationwide shutdown situation. While I was living in Roscoe Village and I was starting to think about, you know, buying maybe a condo or something like that, I also was seriously considering just buying some land and and putting a tiny house on it. Honestly, I, I think that's super cool. You know, it's pretty it's pretty easy to buy land for about a hundred thousand dollars. Good land. I was I was kind of shopping up in Wisconsin, in northern Wisconsin is what I was I was, you know, using Zillow and stuff like that and kind of starting to look for some land. And I thought, okay, maybe in a couple of years or something, I don't know. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure, but I was starting to consider purchasing land and then putting a small building on it, like a tiny home or a little cabin or something, um, compared to buying a half a million dollar condo in Chicago, which is what they're, you know, they're pretty pricey here. I kind of had this dream, and maybe I still do, but I had this dream of like having one tiny house to live in and then right next to it, maybe even connected by a deck 
having another tiny house that's a studio for making podcasts. So I, I had kind of mentioned this just casually to Macy, um, you know, just in, in casual conversation. And she said, oh, you know, I've kind of thought about, she basically indicated that she was kind of considering land in Kentucky because it was near some rock climbing areas that she really likes. And kind of kind of low key over the next couple of days, I guess she started hitting Zillow and started looking at some land and we'd kind of peek at a, a thing here or there. At first I thought, oh, wow, I, I was kind of thinking Northern Wisconsin. I've never even considered going South. And then I realized, well, wait a second, South is, you know, it's warmer, more months out of the year than it is up here in Chicago or even in Wisconsin. I thought that could be cool. That could be nice. Cause even if it's winter here, we could still go down to Kentucky hang out in the wilderness. I also did a driving ETA and I looked at some place in Northern Wisconsin and it was, you know, six hours to drive there from Chicago. And then I basically found the middle of Kentucky and it was about seven hours to drive from Chicago. And I thought, oh wow. So going South is just about the same as going North. Maybe Kentucky would be a great place to have some land. And so for a couple days, you know, Macy would kind of bring the laptop over to me and she'd say, oh, look at this one. I found this one. Sometimes it was sometimes it was a lot of land. Sometimes it was like, oh, here's 100 acres, you know, for really cheap rates. And um, finally, there was one. We'd kind of poke around a little bit. And I, I, she had a couple other friends that had purchased land. And even I think one of them was in Kentucky. She was kind of chatting with them, weighing out pros and cons. And then one day she brought the laptop over to me in the living room. And she said, I, I really like this one. What do you think? And it was a little over 20 acres. It was a valley where three creeks came together. There was a natural spring and all of those things came together and ended up you know, culminating in this like seven foot waterfall. <laughs> it was amazing. And we saw the pictures and we were like, oh, well, it was a really good price too. I found out later that the reason it was a good price is because there was a lot of farming in this area. And ironically, this valley was not particularly valuable to the farmers because it wasn't flat. You know, it was it was uh, not what they were looking for. But for us, it was like exactly the adventure we were looking for. Got, and, and Macy got on the phone with the realtor or the owner or something that day. And <laughs> he basically said, well, would you like to take a look at it? Um, you know, we could, there's a few other people interested. You know, you, you hear that a lot. A um, few other people interested, but we could take a look at it tomorrow if you like. And Macy and I looked each other in the eye. And I think it was 3 p.m. It was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We looked at each other and uh, she turned back. We, we nodded basically to each other. She she, gets, she turns back to the phone and says, yeah, no problem. And we schedule for a 9 a.m. viewing of this land the next day. Now, this was on a weekend. And, uh, you know, Macy hung up the phone and we said we were like, well, let's pack the car because we're driving to Kentucky. <laughs> You know, we packed we packed some clothes for the next day, threw the dog in the car, and we drove seven hours south to a hotel that was like in a neighboring county. I think it was in a place called Berea. We got to the hotel pretty much right at midnight. We went to bed as soon as we could, woke up the next day, and and drove to this. We had to we had to meet the realtor at this little church parking lot in a, in a nearby county, and then he drove us to the land. We followed him, and he you know he kind of like led the way to the land. You know, we, took, we spent an hour or two hiking around the land. There was one, it was all un, there, were, there weren't, any, there, was, there wasn't any buildings on it or anything. It was all undeveloped. There was a, there was a, a power line cutting through a portion of the land to get to a farm that was on the other side of the land. 
which uh, you know made it easy for us to have power connected to this plot. And it was beautiful. It was some. It was the most, some of the most beautiful land I've ever seen in my entire life. And I, I've, you know, I grew up camping in northern Wisconsin, and it gets very beautiful up there. And this area reminded me of that in a in a big way. There was one. There was kind of a. You could tell there was like a little bit of like a pseudo utility trail that also cut through the land where probably the previous owner would take their ATV to go through it real quick or something like that. So we were able to walk on that trail a little bit, and then we went down to the bottom of the valley to see the waterfall. And it was amazing. It had a tree kind of slanting over it. It looked like it was out of a storybook. And there was a little one foot waterfall where the water would culminate and then it would it would pool out for about seven feet and then it would fall down this, like I said, about a seven foot fall into what was kind of like a pool. And then the pool would continue on. There was a ton of debris that had collected in this pool. But as soon as I saw it, I was like, you know, still keeping everything natural, I could clear this out. I think this would clean up nicely. Boy, I mean, every every five, 10 minutes, Macy and I would look each other in the eye and I think we just knew, we, I mean, it was crazy. It was like kind of impulsive, but we just knew it was perfect. And then there was one part of the land that the realtor had had a bulldozer kind of clear out a little bit so that if a purchaser did want to put a building somewhere, that was kind of already taken care of. And so we walked up the other side of the valley to this area. And I specifically remember kind of with a little bit of a glow in our eyes, we literally said to each other, this could work. You know, we finished our meeting with the realtor. We said we would get back to him, let him know drove back to Chicago that day, spoke about it a little bit on the car ride, but we also kind of wanted to just meditate on the whole thing. And that night, I think we both unanimously, you know, we were, we were like, let's go for it. And we made an offer and the offer was accepted. I don't even think there was too much bargaining. You know, we offered just a little lower than the asking, but apparently it was high enough that the owner was pleased with it. And so that was kind of our luxury purchase. I mean, honestly, we also kind of were thinking, okay, maybe we retire here too. Maybe we put a proper house on here and by the time we do retire, or by the time we're in our 50s or 60s, you know, maybe we finish our life here. So it was it was a luxury purchase, but it was kind of an investment as well, as far as that's concerned. We imagined we could use it for that reason. There was also, you know, there was all there's always the chatter about like, oh, let's put a couple other cabins on here and then we can Airbnb the cabins and stuff. And that that's, you know, maybe there's a version where that'll still happen. So in the early days of homesteading this land, there was no direct access to to get a vehicle on this land. So every other weekend, we'd pack up the car. We would drive to this teeny tiny little road that was only one lane wide, but it was adjacent to the land. We'd pull the car over on the grass, take out our equipment. We'd put a vinyl car cover over the car, grab our tent, and just walk into the land. The first time we did this, we did find a little opening in the forest and decided to set up our tent there. And for the next six months, this kind of became our little campsite. It was just insanely raw in those early days. It was so cool. We didn't have water. We didn't have plumbing. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have power tools or, or chainsaws or anything like that. Everything was done by hand. You wanted to start a fire? You'd find a dead tree. You'd start to break it up with a saw and an axe.
oftentimes we could only be there for about three days at a time because we'd be squeezing it in as on a, as a weekend thing. But every day we would, you know, get be one step closer to having a little bit of civilization on that land. I had a lot of fun hanging out down by the waterfall and getting a lot of that debris cleared out. Pretty quickly, Macy got good at breaking down a tree and, and turning it into firewood. There was a town called Richmond that was about a 20 minute drive away. And so oftentimes, maybe once a day, we would drive into town to um, have a slightly more comfortable bathroom break and pick up some food for cooking. We spent a lot of time hiking around. Um, we started to blaze some trails. There was a field towards the back of the land and that's where we started first making new trails. And every night we were back at the tent. <laughs> Every time we were there, some service person or something would come out to the land because we'd be having conversations about how to get electricity on the land eventually, how to get um, maybe some plumbing. We, we weren't sure which way we wanted to go. We, we, we wanted some basic functional, I wouldn't say luxuries, but like functional things. But we were also pretty excited about exploring using uh, solar panels, using compost toilets, using a lot of kind of um, sustainable practices. Eventually, we got our first little shed on the land, and I built a little loft in there that we could sleep in. Yes. Howdy. Well, we put in this plywood for the bed, and um, we bought two eight foot by four foot pieces, and we have some scrap. And I realized that with the scrap, we can probably use that to make a headboard here. But uh, the shapes are a little bit, they're not exactly pre, they're not, they're not exactly pre-planned, so we're kind of going with what we have here. But when I cut this one, it lined up just right with this 2x4 here, but it didn't overlap. So I, basically the quick version of this is, is that after I cut this piece out, it's going to go right here, but there's nothing for it to connect to. So I just put this scrap piece of 2x4 in. It's a bit, it's not fine craftsmanship. <laughs> But we're doing what we can to make it work, and so we're just trying to use some of this other wood. And this is all going to be, I don't know, secured in? I think it'll look really nice. These days we're working on a second building, which is kind of a, I think it's going to be kind of like a shower house, bathroom house. So we did eventually get electricity, but we don't have any plumbing on the land and we're researching um, collecting our own water. As, you know, eventually we'll have like a sink and um, maybe a little, you know, shower head and stuff like that in this in this kind of shower cabin that we're building. Oftentimes during the school year here, uh, we'll go to the land on a weekend and I'll actually do my homework from the cabin or sometimes I'll even do my homework out in the woods by the waterfall. Oh, so cool. I dug out a family-sized fire pit that we could actually sit around and cook around and all of that. The family fire pit is a couple hundred feet deeper down into the valley from where the cabin is. It's really kind of tucked into the woods and it's close enough to the waterfall that uh, at night when you're, if you're really quiet, you can actually hear the waterfall. I mean, that's just where it's at, you know. We cook our meals over the fire. Stay down by the fire for a little bit, go up to the cabin, sit by the windows and look across to the other side of the valley while we just hang out. Someday we'll be living on a mountain 
and every one of our friends will live nearby and someday we'll be brighter than the blue sky and everyone will walk by with their heads held high if you wanna be my love give it time and you'll see it's difficult to describe just how warm this feels to be homesteading in a beautiful part of the country to be learning about yourself the kinds of things you can accomplish the kinds of things your partner can accomplish just to be sharing every tiny little step with someone you love is really incredible. Our house on a little mountainside and wide open spaces cause I know that's what you like you're sleeping in like you always do on a Sunday afternoon But boy, I mean, it's just been the adventure of a lifetime. It has been so cool and so rewarding. When you're just out there in the woods doing everything and nothing. Okay, I am looking at my assignment for my first midterm. We're back in the condo. I'm in my office. A number of weeks have gone by and it's time for midterms. And the first midterm that I'll have here is my class, Philosophical Issues in Film. And I've enjoyed this class quite a bit so far. I've written a couple small little papers each week as assignments. But now it looks like um, I have to write six to nine pages as my midterm, which I'm not freaked out about. But I was kind of getting the hang of writing, you know, little one page responses. So each week we were asked to write a couple paragraphs, maybe a page of uh, reply to whatever film we saw that that correlated to the philosophy that we were studying for that week. And they were small little papers, and and it's true, I think they were only worth like three points for the class. Even though the papers were just small weekly assignments, they ended up becoming pretty fun. Each week I was able to select a film I had never seen before and watch it with fresh eyes, kind of with this kind of pre-context given to me by that week's lecture. In fact, Macy and I have kind of reinterpreted the whole thing as a weekly movie night date for us. We watch the films together, we certainly have a conversation about the film afterwards, I'm able to talk about the lecture to Macy a little bit, she's able to offer her thoughts, and I've been finding that um, that kind of interaction really sets me up in a good way to write my weekly paper the next day or two. Obviously, this is philosophical issues in film, not fun romantic comedies of film. So each of us have had different and mixed reactions to many of these films. But at the end of the day, even if one of us liked a certain aspect or didn't like the other aspect, the conversation itself helps me at least process what I'm going to write about. 
Some of the films that we have watched for our Filmosophy date nights have been A Serious Man, Gattaca, Solaris, Parasite, Minari, The Elephant Man, Black Narcissus, Shoplifters, and even though I knew that some of those films existed, the only one that I had seen before really was Gattaca. So it was really great to be forced to be exposed to some of these films. Some of them were kind of difficult to watch, like Black Narcissus or even The Elephant Man. Some of them seemed like they might be a little boring at first, but really came around like A Serious Man or Solaris. And others were really touching, subtle looks at family life, like in the films Shoplifters and Minari. Overall, it's been really cool to have this additional experience that complements the class. But now it's time for my first midterm. Let's see what will be required of me. I don't think the midterm will be a larger paper on a single film. I suspect that I'll have a couple different things I'll need to talk about. This midterm, which will be six to nine pages, is worth, I think, 30 points, maybe 35, but basically 10 times as much. Oh, 25 points, 25 points for the midterm. And so this is what I have to do. Um, write essays on three of the following questions. Write your essays clearly and carefully, making sure that your ideas are properly explained and defended. Remember that belief claims or opinions must always be backed up by reasoned argument, argumentation and evidence. Illustrate or explain your points with examples and be as concrete as possible. Each answer should be two to three pages long. So I'm picking three of these questions and each answer should be two to three pages long. Uh, typed double-spaced, okay? You should refer to our readings and our films, but you do not need to include a works cited page, all right? Combine all pages into one document before uploading. Okay, fine, fair enough. So these are the five questions. I have to pick three of these five. Oh, the first question is, using our readings and lectures, explain the free will and determinism debate. Don't confuse determinism with predestiny. Do you think free will is real or just an illusion? How does this debate impact our criminal justice system? Okay. Uh, number two, number two would be uh, state the problem of evil, sometimes called the problem of suffering. Offer some possible solutions to this problem. Okay, maybe something there. Um, I remember enjoying our conversation of the, the problem of evil. Uh, essentially, it's you know it's trying to figure out like if if you don't have a um, like a deity telling you what's right and wrong, how do you, do you as a single, as a conscious entity decide what's right and wrong? How do you weigh that? Uh, it, was, it was an interesting conversation for sure. It gets, it gets a lot more complicated than that. Okay, so that one, that's a possible. The, the criminal justice system, free will thing, I, I think I'm a little less excited about that. For me, it feels like it steers into like serial killers and stuff, but it could probably, that conversation could be had for a lot of things, I'm sure. So right now, two is a, is a probably. Uh, three, what does Sartre? I finally figured out by the end of the semester that it's pronounced Sartre, but I'm going to leave this in because this is just where I was at at the time. Hey, that's why you go to school, right? <laughs> Never thought I'd say that. Sartre mean when he says, oh, right, yes, I, I never could quite figure out how to say this uh, person's name, but I'll just say Sartre. Sartre? 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 Sartre. That's a little embarrassing. But anyway, what does Sartre mean when he says existence precedes essence? Oh, yeah, I loved this conversation in class. Sartre claims that the principle overthrows centuries of previous Western thought. Explain. So three is a for sure. 
I was very excited about this conversation in class. And um, it's kind of based off the idea that um, if you, quite frankly, it comes down to you are not what you think you are, you are what you do. And I think that's really cool. The conversation is actually, can be hours longer than that. I just summed it up in a single sentence and it's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But instead of the idea that you are thought to be, maybe by a deity um, or, a, or, a, or an essence uh, above our consciousness, um, it's not so much that you are thought to exist and then you, uh, you do exist. It's more that you exist just because and then you are defined by what you do, not what you think. So if you, if you think you're, um, <laughs> you know, if you think you're someone who does good deeds, it, that may or may not be true. It matters. It really, what's true is if you actually do do good deeds or not. And that's just a quick example. I'm, you know, it's a quick example, quick, quick example here. Okay. I think three is a for sure. Four, all media have limits and potentials for conveying and creating messages and meanings. For example, writing has different communication capacities from pictures, and, and these are different from radio and theater plays and so on. Write an essay explaining the strengths and weaknesses of film to convey philosophical meaning. Okay, I think four is also a definite. Three and four are really standing out for me right now. With my previous almost major in film, and um, definitely that's what drew me to this class in the first place. You know, I, I was drawn to philosophy and film for the film aspects, even more than the philosophy aspects, even though the philosophical conversations have been, um, I think actually pretty enriching. I've enjoyed them quite a bit. Okay, so okay, in theater. So basically, I'll, I think with that one, I'll break apart the different, essentially, I think we're talking about communication methods, radio, theater, film, pictures. All right, yeah, that's cool. Let's see, number five then. Describe how Descartes... Descartes, same situation as Sartre. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he told, he, you know, our professor is, I've been pretty impressed with him and he says all these names correctly. But anyway, uh, at the risk of sounding pretty ignorant here, describe how Descartes came to deny the contents of his own mind. Example, his senses and his ideas. Discuss a specific film, scene, or plot that gave the characters similar doubts, confusion about reality. Or pick a film that makes us, the viewers, similarly confused. Okay, that might, I might be able to work with that too, because it's kind of focused on the film thing again. Um, deny the contents of his own mind. Describe a specific film. That, that give the characters similar doubts, confusions about reality. That one, I think I can lock onto that too. I think there's a lot of films that kind of deal with main characters um, questioning their reality. Okay, so I think honestly, out of all of this, I think I'm going to go three, four, five. Three was the uh, the uh, the uh, existence preceding essence idea. Four was essentially the examining the different ways that the different art mediums can explore philosophy, their messaging. And five, find a film, essentially, if I really broke, broke it down, it's essentially find a film where a character deals with confusions of reality. All right, I am going to use those three. It's Thursday evening right now. As I read over these questions and select which ones I will be writing about, the assignment was released earlier today on Canvas and it'll be due Saturday night at midnight. 
I spend the next morning putting some notes together. I make a couple bullet points, and I even start writing. Macy and I had to run a couple errands in the middle of the day, and as it turned into the evening, I still had some 6-5 media deadlines. So going into Friday evening, for really maybe the first time this semester, I started to really feel some conflict and pressure. Okay, I am um, a little concerned right now because it's five o'clock on a Friday night and my midterm uh, questions for film are due, I don't know, 36 hours? End, end of Saturday night, Saturday night, 11.59, it has to be submitted. And I'm feeling good about them, but I still have plenty to do. And I am feeling a little bit of conflict right now because I also have two production deadlines for 6-5. You know, it's tricky because I think in production, you pick the one that, that has the tighter deadline and you go with it. And maybe that is what I do tonight. Maybe I just get this production done and then I can have a clear mind to finish up my paper. Papers, I guess, for the midterms. But then also you have this, you know, confl- I have this conflicting emotion where it's like, oh, but the the midterms are important because they because they are because of the system of how school works even though they don't feel particularly important in the moment i think what i'm going to do i'm going to go i have to i have to go to the grocery store to get ingredients for cooking dinner tonight and while i do that i'm going to consider i'm going to see if i'm inspired to continue with these midterm questions um because i also don't want to procrastinate but there's like i have like two hard deadlines that have to go out tomorrow well maybe that's the answer maybe i get the deadlines done and then I can like clearly focus on the midterm. I hope, but if I get in, into, oh, how about this? If I get into any problems with these, any production problems with these deadlines, well, no, I don't want to abandon the actual. <sighs> it's all good. It's all good. I'll go get my ingredients. You know what? I think I just thought of something. I think I'll go get the ingredients. I'll come in. I'm going to ping in a couple bullet point notes that I can kind of put on the back bullet point notes for my paper. Keep them on the back burner while I execute the production deadlines. Then I can keep those ideas kind of going in the background and then I can return to them in full. I think that's what I'm going to try to do here. Yeah, this balance or this back and forth of trying to choose priorities, it's one of the first times this is happening um, in school, but this balance of doing the things you're passionate about and doing the things that you know you need to do, but you, you know, your heart isn't beating for them. Essentially the balance of passion and work. This is not a new um, assessment in my life. I started making podcasts, you know, a little over 15 years ago. And pretty quickly, I knew that it was what I wanted to do with my life. And even though I had jobs that I, you know, um, to varying degrees enjoyed, things like Target and S.C. Johnson, and I've had a couple other design companies that I've worked for peppered into my career. The thing that I seem to not be able to um, get over or conquer is that my problem... (laughs) isn't that I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm not someone who has a boring job and is saying, what's it all worth? What does it all matter? I know why I wake up in the morning. I want to wake up in the morning because I want to make podcasts.
And 6-5 is a small little company. It pays for itself. It's kind of like a community theater. It, <laughs> it, it makes a little bit of money through things like merch and sponsorships and uh, Patreon. Most of that money comes from another Zelda podcast, my, my kind of flagship show for 6-5 Media. And then that money um, p- pays for all the server space and the, the Wix accounts and the, you know, the, uh, the, the Facebook ads. And it does okay. It's self-sustaining. So I don't know if it's a hobby or a job or what. But, a, but, but like a community theater, you know, when you, do a, when you do a play, when you do a show, n- none of you are getting paid for, you know, like a community theater experience. And so the only thing that's keeping you there, besides wanting to obviously do the craft, but you've kind of created this, I guess, social contract, which I (laughs) said in my uh, first paper earlier in this episode, you kind of do have this social contract, not just with the audience, but with the people you're collaborating with, the people you're making art with. They're taking time out of their lives to give towards this thing that you're making together. And so you also are taking time out of your life. And it's kind of a you know, you're trusting each other and everyone who's involved. You can't, you can't be in a play and then halfway through the performance run just say, eh, you know, I'm, I'm bored. Um, I'm not going to come in today. That, I mean, you can do that. You would be a, I think everyone would agree, you'd be a pretty terrible person. <laughs> Here we are talking about all this philosophical stuff and uh, what is evil and, and community and all of that anyway. But you've created a, not a financial um, commitment, meaning... You know, like work is, I'm kind of rambling right now, but I'm, I'm okay with keeping this kind of open as we finish off this episode. You know, you, you do your job, hopefully people like their jobs, but at the, at the core, you're doing a job to make a paycheck. And kind of the opposite of that is, is I guess what we kind of call hobbies, where you're doing this thing um, and what you're getting paid, you're getting paid by, you're, you're not getting paid with money, you're getting paid with fulfillment. And then the dream situation is to have your job be the thing that gives you fulfillment, and so then it all lines up. I started podcasting before it was an industry. I started podcasting back when people weren't even sure if they should call it podcasting. It was called that because you would cast files to your iPod. And so it was definitely a hobby. It was almost like ham radio back then. And I've said before, I don't think I'm a very good businessman, I gotta be honest. I. I think maybe sometimes I'm driven too much by the passion and I don't make the, the correct financial choices, quite frankly. You know, in my personal spirit, I don't really feel the need to have a lot of money. I don't find happiness in that way. You, you need a certain amount to live comfortably, and that is certainly desirable. But, um, but I've, I've learned enough about myself that I don't really find happiness by the things that I buy with my money. The things that I get my happiness from don't cost much money at all. And I'm perfectly content to live um, in a non-luxurious way because the luxury is making this stuff. Okay, I'm sitting at my desk, and it is um, Saturday night, October 16th, 2021, and it is 11.42. I have about 12 minutes to submit my midterm. I just finished writing it, and um, I'm exporting to a PDF right now. File. I 
wish I would have had more than two days to write a six-page paper, but that's when the assignment came out. Um, but this was a, this was kind of a marathon a little bit here. I'm very pleased with my first of the three questions that I had to answer. The first one was the one dealing with existence preceding essence, and I'm very pleased with that one. I, I think I did almost three pages on that one, and um, I think there's a decent conversation being had there. The second one, okay, where am I at? Oh, 11.43. You know what? I'm going to get this uploaded first because I don't want to be late. Scary stuff, dude. I mean, I guess it's like a deadline. Grades. Okay, so I'm going over to Canvas and selecting the midterm exam. Submit the assignment. This is for 25 points. All of my papers for film so far have been three points. Only do only three points, so I'm a little nervous. This one obviously is more. I mean, this, I think I, let me look. This one ended up being about 2,500 words. And usually I'm writing maybe 400 words for a paper. You know, usually it's just like a quick comment, three, four paragraphs kind of thing. Um, this was longer. <laughs> 25 points total. I'm going to guess based on my weak third answer here, my less than stellar third answer, I'm going to guess I get less than 20 points. I really hope that's not true but I have a perfect 100 so far in this class. All the, like my six other assignments, I got three points out of three points. So here's hoping. Choose the file, submit the assignment. Oh gosh, I just have a pit in my stomach, here we go. Okay, click to submit. I guess it's submitted. There's nothing telling me that it has been posted. <laughs> okay, uh, let me go to grades in canvas and see so now i see midterm and it does have the little submit icon on there okay well there it is it's midnight first midterm has been submitted we shall see a few days go by and i can't help but ruminate on all the ideas and observations that i've been collecting this first half of this semester from leaving a job that i didn't love but it gave me financial stability to being in a relationship with someone who's tremendously supportive, to have the opportunity to get together with my professors and chat with them about this whole thing, to living in an absolute fantasy in the woods out in Kentucky. After a couple days, I can't handle it and I grab a microphone and I try to record my thoughts. You know, I don't wanna watch TV, I wanna make TV. I don't wanna, I don't wanna be a consumer, I wanna be a creator. I just know that. I mean, I get bored consuming things and I get really excited creating things. And I think there are a lot of people out there that want to go to work, come home and, you know, watch a bunch of TV or something like that. Or, or, or you maybe we've kind of romanticized reading, but like, or sit down and read all night long or, you know, come, come home and listen to music all night. It can, it can still be an artful experience, but it's consuming, not creating. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need <laughs> consumers. Oh boy, this is kind of it's kind of funny how these words are coming out like this. And now that I think about it, it's not just creating for other people. I just like to, you know, like in Kentucky, I like to create for personal experiences. You know, I'm kind of going off the rails here, but let's just do this for a second. I'm remembering when I was a kid, I was not an only child. I had two sisters, and I'm. And I'm you know, loving family was, I've, I've spoken to that many times in this show already, but I was the only boy. And so most of my play was, I think, creative play. I was playing with 
you know, wooden blocks and Legos. And there's a toy called Constructs back when I was a kid that I really liked. Built building toys, basically toys where you build things. I had a slot car track here and there because you get to make your own tracks. So I was more than happy to sit in my room and make things in my room. We had a literal sandbox in the back. And as I got older, my play turned into, you know, visions of tree houses and things like that. So in my adult life, I guess you could say for the past 20 years, I've really wrestled with trying to figure out if wanting to have the days of your life to be filled with the thing you love, and I'll just kind of boil that down to creating things, I guess, for whatever kind of thought thread I'm on right now. Jobs like The Oprah Show and working at S.E. Johnson, they were creative enough that I could kind of still stay in the space of designing things and creating things. But then of course, but really I was, you know, going home in the evenings to go make more podcasts. And by making podcasts, I'm able to make websites and I'm able to make graphics for the podcast. And I'm able to do all the things that, that truly make me happy. I guess, I mean, obviously I guess there's nothing wrong with that. The, the, the thing that's wrong with that is if it goes so far that you allow yourself to fall into a starving artist kind of situation. I know that that's a little bit of a trope. Oh, the starving artist. And I think I mean, oh, you know, really, it's probably because oftentimes, I suppose, artists aren't driven by money. They're driven by fulfillment or creating things. But our our society, obviously, <laughs> um, very much uses money as the main metric. And that's okay. I'm not saying society should necessarily change or anything like that. Oh, I wonder if that's why I like being in the woods. You know, because when you're out in the wilderness, it's just you and the actual natural world. It's not about necessarily being away from other people. I enjoy being around people. I love living in the city. But when you're in the middle of the woods, money doesn't matter. What matters is what do you make? And every single action, you're making something. You're making a fire to make dinner, to make a trail, to make a cabin. Okay, so I'm realizing that that's what attracts me to that kind of thing. Oh, and I'm also realizing, oh, I'm really appreciating this kind of reflection moment. Well, anyway, I guess, I guess all of this is to say that for the past 15 years, I haven't been lost. I've known exactly what I want to do and where I want to go and where, where, where I want to be, I guess you could say. What I've been struggling with is how to make that fit into the world. I know it's possible. I mean, actually, at this point, you know, podcasting is a full industry. And so I think it's becoming more and more realistic. And, you know, maybe this is what I needed. I am grateful that this situation that Macy and I have, this allows me to go back to school so that the thing that I love can fit into, uh, you know, the world, whatever, society, whatever. I started recording thinking that I was going to talk about how doing homework is kind of like having a job and how there's a pull, a push and a pull between doing that and the things you love. That's what I thought I was going to talk about, but I ended up going all over the place. Okay, let's let's reel this in. I think my mind is erupting with all these thoughts right now because maybe in some way midterms are the first checkpoint on this journey. You know, the first stop where I'm able to reflect and assess what I'm doing. It's been a whirlwind and maybe this is my first pit stop and I want to be in this race, right? Also, I'm sure I'm just going through plenty of emotional whiplash because this has been such an enormous change in my life. If this doesn't work, I don't know what happens. If this doesn't work, I'll be 45 and right back where I started, but without a job. I'm sure I'd be welcomed back at Target, but then there goes five years of my life. 
I do feel a responsibility to hold my end of the bargain with Macy. And I think I like that emotion because it, it helps drive me. You know, she's working hard and that's allowed us to be on a single income and has allowed me to do this school thing. The situation doesn't escape me. She's mentioned that on the other side of this, she'd like to slow down a bit. And my official career in podcasting could, you know, step up and we could live happily ever after with a comfortable dual income. And I love that. She has asked in the past that I try to at least get up to the $100,000 a year range, which actually is in that target store director salary spectrum, which I'll remind you was the promotion that I was originally pursuing that started this whole thing. But I've never made that much money. And even that is just a fraction of what she makes now. So I would love to be able to do that for us. Though we have been researching podcast producer jobs and many of them are falling in that 70 to 80,000 a year range. But, you know, I don't know. I just, I feel so much love because Macy has said that she'd be fully supportive if that were my income. And I believe her. So much talk about money, though. Well, if it wasn't for money, I wouldn't be able to do this. For an arts school, Columbia is pricey, and I'm thoroughly enjoying returning. Oh, I have spaghetti head right now. All the philosophers that we've been studying, they all explore why we do the things we do. Do we do them because we're told to do them by a god or a deity? Do we do them because we're scared of a demon? Are we evil just because we choose to be? Are we good because we choose to be? How much, you know, how much do we let the powers that power over us control us? Do we let them control us? Is defined these powers evil or enlightenment? I guess it depends on which powers you're talking about. It's all a matter of perspective. I know that needing to choose between 6-5 deadlines and school deadlines this week, it, it brought me right back to the struggles of my past. Being stuck in a job that I didn't care about while my passion slipped away to the side, for me, that's not a happy way to live. I gotta find that balance. And maybe this is it. School lays out a path for financial success and hopefully fulfillment. And 6.5 Media lays out a path of fulfillment, hopefully, with financial success. Neither of the latter are promised. Most of my life, I've chosen an artistic path at the cost of financial success. And that doesn't always work. I've, I've had help along the way. F eventually, I just kind of learned how to live meagerly and pursue those passions. But I'm not alone this time. This time I'm in a partnership. And I know that I want to do my part for us. I certainly feel that Macy's doing hers. All right, I think I'm in desperate need of some sage wisdom here. In the next episode, I'm going to travel back to my hometown, Kenosha, where I've tracked down a teacher from high school that really fed my soul and, and I think changed the course of my entire life. His name's Marvin Motter, and with the exception of the occasional social media you know, message, I haven't actually chatted with him for almost 20 years. I was able to kind of track him down, and we've been chatting a little bit regarding this show. And I asked if I could meet up with him for a while and, and, uh, and we could just chat and catch up. In high school, he was one of my teachers that somehow encouraged me to do what was needed to be done to succeed in school, but also encouraged me to 
I guess, from the point of view of school, rebel and find my passions? He helped me feel like it wasn't evil to go against the grain or to find why you're alive. You know, evil's a strong word, but it's also a matter of perspective. So until then, I'm going to take a little more time and meditate on all these thoughts. Am I making these choices for me or for the powers that power over me? Do I believe in those powers? The powers of school? The powers of a conventional society? Oy, oy, oy. I do believe in Macy and I. And maybe we're kind of a yin-yang or something. But I do feel balanced with her. Returning Student is a production of 6.5 Media. You can find the show notes for this episode on our website, returningstudent.com. The show's hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, David Geisler. Links to the music used in this episode can be found in our show notes as well as on our website. If you liked the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. I'm going to be doing this for a couple years, so let's find out together how all this is going to go. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Returning Student. That's student spelled S-T-D-T. All right, I'm David Geisler, and I'll see you on the next episode of Returning Student.